Welcome to the Shelfwarmers Podcast, the show about toys, why we like them, and their connection to bigger topics. I'm your co-host Sugu, and tonight we're going to talk about pacing and structure. I'm your co-host Darby, and we're going to talk about why none of that matters. (laughs) (laughs) Who cares? begin by way of introduction i'm darby harn a freelance writer and editor and an independent author publishers weekly called my novel ever the hero an entertaining debut which uses superpowers as a metaphor to delve into class politics and an alternate america you can find more information about me and my books at darbyharn.com i'm also on twitter at darby harn and i'm sugu your co-host i work in it and education and i'm also passionate about writing and story You can find some of my travel writings on allaboutjapan.com, where I've written various articles about my life and perspectives in Japan. Tonight, we're going to react to yet another YouTube video that I shared with Darby. (laughs) Um, I don't remember the the channel name. It's a brand new one. I haven't seen this guy before, but this person was talking about why streaming shows have terrible pacing which is something that you and i have talked about for a long time in regards to like uh the mandalorian Mm -hmm. um she hulk had it a couple other episodes a couple other tv shows that we've talked about have had this weird pacing issue and structural issue and he suggests a different way to address pacing in tv shows which I think it's kind of an intriguing idea. Uh, yeah. So that's how we're going to get started. Uh, Darby, do you want to kind of fill in the gaps? I was trying to get it. So it's a Steve Shives. And um, I don't know much about him uh, other than he does say in the video at the outset that he's not a writer. Right. And so... I'll say at the outset that I am. And so that is the approach that I take to this stuff always. And we talked about that at various points on the pod, whether we're talking about, um, like you mentioned, you know, we're talking about the show I've been thinking about a lot this week is Andor. We haven't talked about Andor on the pod, but I've been thinking about it a lot in relationship to Book of Boba Fett, which we did talk about. And Book of Boba Fett in particular for me was an absolute train wreck in terms of pacing, structure, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Andor is the exact opposite. It's, Andor is exquisite. It's it's a slow burn. It's immaculate in its pacing and its structure. But this, this conversation is interesting because what I've found in, with all these recent shows in the sort of the streaming era Almost the first thing that always comes up in regards to whatever it is, Star Wars or MCU or uh, Rings of Power recently or House of Dragon, um, the first thing that almost always comes up is pacing and structure. It's too slow. Structure's weird. It's off. And the, the degree to which this comes up is sort of is curious um, for a lot of reasons to me, 
Um, like I said, I, I'm a writer, so I think about pacing and structure all the time. I write novels, I don't write TV, so you're like, well, well those are two different things. Yes, but one thing that um, prestige TV is often compared to, especially when you think about show critically acclaimed shows that uh, people always cite when they're talking about examples of, you know, prestige TV, The Wire, Sopranos, things like that. They always refer to them, not always, they often refer to them as novelistic. And what do they mean Can by that? Can you back up for a second? What is prestige yeah. TV? I've never heard this term before. Prestige TV is a term here in the States for high quality, uh, usually streaming uh, shows. And this goes back to The Sopranos. This goes but back to... But The Wire wasn't the, uh, streaming, nor was The Sopranos. So this is... These are HBO, right? These are legacy shows, but prestige TV in the moment is anything that is wielding uh, movie money, movie talent in a in a streaming slash cable environment. Cable is rapidly evaporating here in the states, but um, House of the Dragon it airs both on HBO and on HBO Max. Okay. Um, it's these are critically acclaimed shows huge viewership sometimes um better call saul slash um breaking, breaking bad, bad airs on airs on net uh fx uh cable linear um these are examples of prestige tv which are not network tv which network the networks your traditional networks typically don't generate critical commercial uh, product like this, right? Content Would like Ted this. Lasso or The Good Place or Archer be considered prestige TV? It, um, I can't speak to Ted Lasso other than I know it's very popular. I, I haven't seen it. Uh, the Good Place, I think you could make a very strong argument that it is. It's atypical for network TV. Um and its critical success was not commercially successful. So, but it did, it did sort of end on its own terms. Um, uh, I forget the other one you mentioned. Uh, but, Archer. Uh, Archer, Archer FX again, FX is a bastion for prestige TV. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't have to be like the, the grim and gritty deconstructing life stories it can be a comedy not at all rick and morty would be an example in adult swim adult swim has been for 20 years uh uh bastion also for shows that would never get produced on network tv right uh the list goes on and on and on and on uh rick and morty is maybe the best example over there right now uh where it is critically uh successful um one of the biggest, if not the biggest, animated series going at the moment. Is that a show um, worth watching? I love Rick and Morty. You and I have talked about the multiverse a ton on the show, on the pod, uh, here and there. Um, if you're a multiverse person whatsoever, you're you're you have to watch Rick and Morty. You probably already are. Um, so, I, I it's Rick and Morty was uh, is uh, just 
fantastic show that is often brilliant brilliant uh can be very dark very dark but is often brilliant so archer is a series which some people consider sort of goofy or frivolous very critically successful it has been ups and downs of the 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 recent series seasons sort of had some downs but this legacy that really starts with Sopranos and some other shows in that period uh, up through the modern day here into sort of now the streaming environment is what people are referring to uh, by Prestige TV. I forget my original point about that, but um, the this conversation about pacing is most often associated with these types of shows. And you have it uh, with every major series which has been going on recently. House of the Dragon, Rings of Power, She-Hulk, Andor, forgetting one. Um, but yeah, that's been a conversation about all of those shows. They're too slow. They're too fast. House of the Dragon. They're all over the shop. She-Hulk, Andor, too slow. Um, and I find it just really interesting and fascinating from a lot of levels just because as a writer, we, we had Michael Rex on when we talked about Obi-Wan and we talked a little bit about the structure and pacing and Mike and I talked about um, approaching it from as being writers and creatives um, and I think that informs our sort of approach to it so it's something like Andor I'm just absolutely in love with I just adore it it's the best Star Wars series by a country mile for a host of reasons not just the pacing but I also understand why people say it's slow because it is deliberately, it's a slow burn. It's novelistic. It's you start, you build your crew, you layer things, and then you start, you start pulling strings and it's now it's into episode nine. It's just, it's, it's, it's exquisite. Um, but people have different, you know, when you watch star Wars, you expect a very different kind of pace, right? Star Wars slam bang, you know, mile a minute type of a thing. So this show is not that. This is very atypical for Star Wars to the point where on Twitter the other day I had mentioned this is the least Star Wars show that they've ever done. It's also the most Star Wars show they've ever done for a lot of different reasons. Um, this is, I don't want to make this entirely about Andor, but it's, it's, it's investigation of character, theme, place, the politics, which have always been present in Star Wars, but now you're screwing down to the nuts and bolts of the Empire and the Rebellion. Very fascinating. I have not seen Andor. Oh, dear. <laughs> At all. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Oh, all right. I'll, I will check it out. It, uh, Disney Plus, right? Oh, yeah. It's a great example of what... I had gotten to a point where we talked about this with Boba Fett, where I had thought, I wondered if Star Wars, the format was not as elastic as maybe they had thought or hoped. Um, the MCU is able to sort of diversify and do very different genres in essentially every um, show or movie they do. Um, and now it's very broad with um, with Disney Plus. You, you have all kinds of things that they're doing, and it's flexible. And there's sort of inherent Marvel DNA, but there's it's very flexible. You saw that with She-Hulk. Mm -hmm. Star Wars. I, I started to think that that wasn't the case. 
that the Star Wars DNA is the Star Wars DNA, the format is the format, and Book of Boba Fett was a prime example of not understanding the assignment in that case. Andor proves that Star Wars is very flexible. That Star Wars lends itself very well to the parameters of what I was referring to as prestige TV. Andor is functionally the wire in a galaxy far, far away. It okay. and that works so well as to as to be astonishing, but also very rewarding. It's very optimistic for the future of Star Wars and Star Wars storytelling. And didn't you also say and, The Mandalorian is basically a Western, but in Star Wars? Yeah. yeah, The Mandalorian takes that Western element, which has always been in Star Wars, and just isolates it, right? It sort of pulls yeah. that out from the other stuff. So the original Star Wars is, is a Western, but it's also a samurai movie. It's also Flash Gordon. It's also Akira Kurosawa. It's, all, it's this stuff. Mandalorian takes that Western bit, just focuses on that to great results. Um, but the pacing the in Mandalorian, anyway. yeah, the, the pacing in Mandalorian is often, I feel, repetitive. I feel mm-hmm. it's often jerky. Um, and it's because it's focusing on those beats and they just cycle through. And sometimes they cycle very fast. And then in Book of Boba Fett, you saw that to its worst extreme. Book of Boba Fett was just an absolute train wreck. In terms of pacing, in turn, they tried to inter intercut with these flashbacks to Boba interacting with the Tuscans that went nowhere, had no impact on the modern story, which the show didn't care about the pre- the present day story. I should say, the show didn't care about the present day story to the point where they interrupted the show in the middle of the show to focus on the Mandalorian, which is what we really only cared about. That was very good, but that also burned through an entire season of story in two. Ep- one and a half episodes so we burned through mando's reunion with grogu and grogu's training with luke skywalker which is monumental luke's relationship with ahsoka monumental we burned through that in 75 minutes to get back to a show that no one cared about including the creators i think that's my my issue with all of the the pacing and the structure talk and the, the like the debate about it is it feels like in the writer's room they really only have maybe 90 minutes of actual story that's right. been cons- that's been contracted out to 10 to 13 episodes and so what they're doing is it feels like to me anyway they're taking the 2 hours of story and they're stretching it out so thin that over the series or over the season, you don't have what feels like a slow burn. You just have little bits and pieces that you have to pay attention to that's surrounded by all this muck of stuff that is utterly unimportant. And it doesn't actually go anywhere. And if they had done what, you know, what the video we were talking about, uh, where they're this album style. If they had done something like that, maybe, but I don't know. It just feels like there's so much padding and fluff in every series that I've watched anyway recently that I'm just like, I where think, is this all going? I think that's the thing exactly. She said, you know, it doesn't, it's not important, it's fluff. And I think that's the problem is that there's nothing inherently wrong with 
the structure, Steve Shives in his video sort of criticizes the traditional three-act structure applied to a TV show because he's, he's basically saying, well, that doesn't really work. Here's some other things you could try. Save the cat, the album thing, which is really interesting and for a lot of reasons because I had a lot of conversations about music lately that sort of appealed to me on that front. But I disagree with him. I, the three-act structure does work in long-form series um, for reasons you and I talked about in the chat this week. Um, you can take those very broad bullet points, sort of the um, inciting incident, first plot point, etc., midpoint, resolution, climax, and apply them to a series, six episodes, nine episodes, 13 episodes. The trick is, is that once you have those points, if you have them from the beginning, and not all of them do, is... Jessica, I just watched absolutely very, very good um, behind the scenes doc on She-Hulk on Disney Plus. Uh, came out, it's very, very good. And but she, she mentioned in the doc that they had no clue going into the final episode what really the final episode would, would be, other than they were dissatisfied with their original ideas, and would led to their very bold. Um, we can talk about the execution of it but the sort of the meta thing that happens in the in the finale so you don't always have an idea sometimes you do um if you do that broad structure applied to it is and or clearly knows what it's doing um is fine but those segments between you can't just regard as segments between where you got to spend your tires or, or fill time or vamp right um you know, those are opportunities, as I think Steve Shives said um, in his video, those are opportunities for you to do, to tell stories. And so, and to tell stories that contribute to the whole. And so, like, I think about this all the time. Um, I've mentioned on the pod before is that I'm, I'm writing in my Eververse series. It's a nine book series. It actually, on the macro scale, has this plot, the three act plot structure. But each book, though, internally has is his own story it's a beginning middle and end mm -hmm. but they each contribute to the whole this ideally would be what your television show would be doing especially because of the episodic format and i think it shows that have been most successful that have done this like deep space nine is when i think about just a very far ahead of its time where mm -hmm. deep space nine was an episodic star trek show classic traditional format every week is a different story but what D Space Nine did is they told this macro story, yep. of which a couple macro stories, which was the uh, Bajoran uh, integration of the Federation, which talk about how that ended, and also ultimately the Dominion War. Those macro stories played out over seasons, and they would flare up. But they come were down, also peppered flare. in throughout, like just a little bit here and there, so that you were kind of reminded mm -hmm. about the story. You're reminded about the macro, but it didn't overtake, you know, like the other, the episode, the episodic stories didn't feel like a waste of time. It didn't feel like we were just spinning our wheels, waiting until we get to the, the big stuff. And I a feel like a lot of stories now are losing that. Yeah. Cause I think we're getting away from this type of storytelling in TV um, a classic example of this is In the Pale Moonlight, which is arguably the best episode of Star Trek ever. 
I think this is season five, season six. Um, it's the episode which has now become a meme, <laughs> uh, where the Romulan senator uh, they try Cisco and they 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 do something very on Starfleet, in which they try they desperately need the Romulans to come into the war with the Dominion, the and they decide to deceive the Romulans by creating a, a some type of uh, holodeck hologram thing that shows the Dominion plotting against the Romulans. This fails on a spectacular level, and so that meme there where the Romulan senator is like, it's a fake, has become a meme uh, in the modern day. So anytime anybody's like calls bullshit on Twitter, it's a fake. Um, but... So what do they do, or what does Garrick do, I should say? Garrick kills the Romulan senator, plants the holodeck thing on the shuttle, which is destroyed. The destruction of the shuttle damages the, the it's like a chip or whatever they called those, to the point where no one can tell that the program was faked. Cisco becomes complicit in the murder of a Romulan senator, and the dragging the Romulans into an intergalactic war, which results in billions of deaths. That episode is part of this macro story. It's one of the big waypoints in the macro story. That episode is a monologue of Captain Sisko doing his, um, his uh, captain's log, talking directly to the camera and relating the story as it played out. It's extraordinary. Extraordinary 45 minutes television that is an episode, beginning, middle, and end. Internal structure, the monologue, macro, right? Macro mm -hmm. sort of thing. That is extraordinarily, that was extraordinarily rare in 1990 something. Extremely rare today. And so you have mostly what you have today is shows like game of thrones or house of the dragon which are novelistic in the sense it's one story broken into chapters those chapters often don't have internal structure they're just we ended here now we're starting here so they're they don't have any feeling of you know like this most recent episode of andor episode nine had a very internal structure and that structure wasn't plot it was character and theme. Each character is in a prison, right? Literally, figuratively, cosmetically. Very rare. And I think that's the trick with all this. This When we're complaining about pacing, I think some people think what we're complaining about is that it's it doesn't have that internal structure. The episode doesn't feel like it has a start, a middle, a finish. It just sort of ends. It's like, okay, you know? Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, just I mean, ends. for myself, what I often feel is like, and I'll use She-Hulk as an example. I liked the abomination plotline where she had to defend this guy who would go after her cousin, right? I thought that was a really interesting uh, story. But it wasn't, it didn't go anywhere, right? It was just a, a thing that happened and then it kind of ended. 
And then the next thing was Wong was involved with the whole magic and whether magic can be copyrighted and uh, uh, protected and whether you can cease and desist magic. And then that went nowhere. It was just a bunch of these like little... It was a bunch of these little bits and pieces that the show told us is unimportant. Right? It would be different if it was if it was layered in. And one example, by the end of the se- by the end of season 1, that magician didn't come back. That was a one-off. There that's done. Megan this yes. Megan the Stallion didn't come back. That was a one-off that was done so it would be different if the show had established itself as a bunch of episodes with some of the bigger arc kind of peppering through but it didn't it kind of established itself as we're telling one big story over 10 episodes and then you have all of these little sidetracks she hulk even called it out herself in the show when she said oh did you think this was going to be a series of cameos turns out it actually was even though she said it wouldn't be it we talked about this in our she-hulk episode it's that you know there's it's a different animal it's a different beast than these other shows we're talking about but the show i think for my two cents is is plagued by first draft isms and that only becomes more and more obvious when I watched the doc and it was clear that they were, for whatever reason, that, you know, they were laying down track and, you know, it was only at the end that these things sort of, you know, the show, they literally textually discard the, the finale, the plot in the finale because they grew dissatisfied with it. And so because by virtue of her meta aspects, could do that and so that is interesting and it uh, on some level it was successful when you look back at at it as a unit and from a pacing and structure standpoint it has all those problems you mentioned you have things which are interesting that pop up but don't really go anywhere and that there's characters that weren't developed there's plots that weren't developed there was themes that weren't developed and we had a lot of you know if you could take it as a unit and you could say this thing about magic is super interesting is this a magic show not really but this is like a lawyer show and they wanted to do sort of like a lawyer show of the week. They kind of did that, but then they kind of didn't. Right. That's the thing, Um, right? Like it never went far enough to actually be that this is what the show is. And so that led to the pacing problem, which is that we're kind of, you know, and then when it found its legs, when it, anytime it focused on Jen and Jen's journey and whether that was that episode, there's the, the scene where she goes to, um, uh, abominations, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, retreat uh, that scene when she they're in the circle and they're talking that scene goes on something like 10 minutes very long for a television show they're just talking but it gets to this sort of breakthrough in her character it's very mm-hmm. good when we finally get to daredevil daredevil he clicks with her on so many levels but the story starts to click too because now there's this counterweight to Jen, Jen's things like, well, I don't want to be She-Hulk. I'm a lawyer, and then, but, but Matt is Matt's a superhero and a lawyer. So, and then also he's an antagonist in the courtroom because they're on different sides of the aisle. That dynamic needed to be there much sooner, and they mm-hmm. could have played that for like a lot more. They didn't. 
what are, you know we, we you know so and like the other the i think it was even today actually um i watched finally i'm done with uh star trek strange new worlds i finally watched oh, the God. first season of that good show same problem it like the final episode in the season is all about the vision that he had in discovery right hmm. well that was in the very beginning of the season like when we first saw pike he was dealing with that and then like the middle four five six episodes might as well have been forgotten like well i disagree with that um i strange new worlds is a good example of sort of trying to get that deep space nine feel where it's episodic but yet there's a macro and i i i i have i could take or leave the pike story that felt repetitive to me in a lot of ways i enjoyed it but it felt like we were hitting the same beat but i felt the middle i felt sort of the the sort of the um a lot of the episodes really worked very well. I I I, re- I love that show. It's very good, so very well made. Yeah. Let me clarify what I mean because yeah. what I'm talking about is how most of the season I was really into. I really enjoyed it because, as you said, we know what's going to happen. So in the very first episode, as kind of a getting to know Pike, this is what he's dealing with. And, you know, we know from Discovery, he saw his future, but he decided as captain, he's still going to do it anyway. Okay. Yeah. So he went forward, right? That was that was great. That's how who we know of Pike. First episode, that's what we know of Pike. And it kind of revisits mm-hmm. that so that we're reacquainted with him and we move on. Fine. And now the rest of the season doesn't talk about it. That's great. We don't. It's telling us, the audience, we don't have to worry about it. But then to make the final season episode be all about it, to revisit it. That's the part that I'm going like, wait, why are we going back to this? We already know what he's doing. We already know that, yeah, he's conflicted about it, but he made the decision to accept his fate and to do what he needs to do anyway. Because that's Starfleet. So why are we making That's, the entire season episode, the season finale, all about this? That's what I'm That's talking the, about. That's the repetitive part that I sort of felt like was unnecessary. I felt like, I felt like he dealt with it, and then he was dealing with it again. As as I thought, the finale was very good in a lot of ways. I thought the way that it sort of approached the balance of terror, story, plotline from a different angle was interesting and, and very well made, very well realized and, and took some serious uh, nerve to approach an episode, a classic episode like that. Um, but I found that part repetitive, but I, I like that there, I like that there was threads though with, with Pike and I, and I can understand how you could feel like it's resolved and then it's not. Cause that's true in life. You feel like you've put something away and then it, gets back out on you uh, so I liked that I, they, I personally would have maybe approached it a little bit differently but 
you had other threads like uh, Laon's uh, PTSD, which I thought mm-hmm. was very good with the Gorn. And I wanted more Gorn because I know some people didn't. Some people were like, why? I thought that was interesting. I thought the episode with the crash ship on the ice planet. Very good. I, I like Laon as a character a lot. I think she's got a lot of potential. The show clearly loves her to the expense of number one. I came into the show expecting we're going to get a lot of number one. We're going to find out a lot about her. She's going to be front and center. You got Rebecca Romaine. And they did one episode on her. And then they're like, it's, they're always leaving her behind, dude. They're always like, mm-hmm. They did it again in the finale. It was like, so hopefully in season two, they correct that. Um, um, the stuff, the running stuff with Chapel and Spock and then um, uh, Tapel. Oh my God. Like that. I know some people didn't like that. I thought that Tepel? was Tapring. I'm sorry. Tapring. Is it Tapring? Yeah. Yep. Um, I thought that was great. And I, I, thought they're, I thought they're all great together. That actress, I forget her name, is playing. Chapring is fantastic. Uh, Chapel is fantastic. Spock's journey through the show. And his we, get, we got a little bit younger Spock, who's a little bit more raw. And you see that in places. And he's torn between these obligations. And then you have the episode with the pirate, which was my favorite thing ever. And then this confrontation. The oh, with, when he... Uh... Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. The I forget her name. Was it Angel? <laughs> Something like that. But yeah, she took over the Enterprise just to get her lover free. I think it was Cybok. Like that was a great swerve. Um, I forget the character's name. Angel, played by Jesse James Keitel, and just an absolute. I love that. It was just absolute heel turn for the ages. And um but couched in this conversation of binaries and that go we went into Spock's whole arc in the series and the saga, the Star Trek saga writ large and then so it's this in in the larger show, these binaries of of number one, her Starfleet officer very buttoned up. There's this whole thing aspect of her you don't know. She comes. She's actually lied about her identity on her Starfleet application. Pike, who is Pike? Is he the man he's always been, or is he this man he's going to be? Spock, is he human? Is he Vulcan? Do those things even matter? Laon, is she her trauma, or is she who is she? Mm-hmm. Um, Chapel is Chap. Chapel's fascinating. Fascinating take on a classic character who's basically a uh, a blank uh, board because you can do anything with her. You don't really know anything about Chapel in the original series other than she cares about Spock. So they took that and they made Chapel interesting. Um, Ohura, mm-hmm. extraordinary. You find out more about Ohura in that one episode than you did the entire franchise to date. Ohura is is in Starfleet because she feels like she has to be, but she doesn't want to stay there. And she doesn't really know because she's so young at this stage. She doesn't really know who she is either. Mm-hmm. That Strange New Worlds is very well put together with some, you know, some missteps, some growing pains, some, um, you know, things I, I think hopefully in season two they sort of course correct. Sounds like they will. 
I've heard. Yeah. And in from... my opinion, its strength is that it really tried to focus on individual uh, episodes. Oh, yeah. As opposed to trying to tell yeah. this bigger arc. But that's where I think the season... Because don't get me wrong, I liked the season finale. Like, I, I liked that story in and of itself, like, in isolation. But I think to try to make it tie back to the very first episode to try and continue that arc of will he or won't he uh, carry on his fate. I, I just found that a really weak rapper for an otherwise very strong story. I Yeah, I could take it or leave it. I sort of want them to sort of, I feel like we've done that. And so let's move forward. Let's move on. Unfortunately, the show is structured in a way that we're going to inevitably end there, right? Um, with mm-hmm. Pike's um, experience. That's probably going to so, be the, se- the series finale. Right, and the transition to Kirk. And so they've introduced Kirk, and so Kirk is going to be a much bigger part of the show in season two. And I imagine what they have in mind, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure from given what I've heard, that the transition is we're going to get like four or five years or however of Star Trek Strange New Worlds with Pike. And then we're going to transition into Kirk and Spock because why not? Right. Mm -hmm. We got so let's so of course they will. Um, But we'll see. That's that's down the road. But um, but to your point there, you know, the the format does work. And I I think to go back to the larger pacing question, part of my problem with the the sort of the, the more recent Star Trek series has been in large measure this. I found Discovery uh, and Picard largely structurally unsatisfying because they're telling the sort of what's the sort of the vogue sort of macro story that's just segmented in chapters mm-hmm. to often frustrating results. Whereas Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks are telling classic Star Trek format episode of the week, story of the week, but overlaid with that, the macro, you know, subplots that play out over the season and i think in particular lower deck season three which just wrapped did that very well strange new worlds i think did it good uh you know your your mileage may vary but i think for me personally as a star trek fan that's that's the sweet spot is Mm -hmm. classic star trek story of the week but we have these overarching plots that um that come in and out and build and you know strange new worlds okay we can you know we can do better by that but um that i I think that's really where it needs to be and and for like a lot of tv it just depends you know like and or again novelistic it's more has more in common with sopranos and wire and those types of shows than it does star trek but yet still has internal consistency but I think Strange New Worlds, I think, and a lot of people responded very positively uh, to Strange New Worlds. Um, and I think it's because it's just, it's so familiar in terms of it's what a lot of people want in Star Trek, which is that classic format, but yet is giving us things that sort of previous Star Trek couldn't really do in terms of you know some of the overarching stuff i'd I'd like to see be a little bit more brave 
I'd like to see it be a little, you know, push things that, you know, there's, there's some interesting things going on. I thought, you know, having Jesse James Keitel on was a great flashpoint in terms of this conversation about representation and media, because there was a quick tangent here. Sorry. Um, when she does the heel turn and she becomes the villain, I thought it was glorious. And there was a sort of instant reaction on the Twitter because that's what Twitter is, is instant reactions of people complaining about um, criticizing the show for depicting, depicting a trans character as a villain, which a lot of people were unhappy with, which prompted Jesse James Keitel to, to say, to push back and say, you know, she wanted to play the villain and she wants to be able to play the part, you know, different kinds of parts Mm -hmm. and does not want to be dictated to by people that you and I were talking about before we started recording the types of part, you know, she doesn't want to be the good, you know, the, the sort of fits inside of a very narrow, uh, picture of what people have of, um, trans people, transness is an aspect of, her personality, but then also the characters who I think I I wish I could remember her name, Angel, I think, Um, or was that the ship? I don't know. Uh, Of their character and their personality and their identity, it's not the end all be all. And so like she was saying on Twitter, she's like, if I, you know, if I want to vamp and I want to play the villain, I should be able to play the villain. And, you know, that's part of, having freedom and representation in media is I get to do the things I want. I get to go out for the parts I want and I get to get those parts because now we're not being silly and we're not, you know, so that type of a thing. So I agree with her. I, I, you, you know, it's representation means representation and it's not, it's not, um, refereeing who gets to do what and, um, and when, and um, and uh, we're gonna see her again. She's gonna come back next season, and uh, I hope I hope it's as much fun as it was the first time around because that was great. I know some people thought it turned into a completely different episode when she started doing the maniacal laughter. I thought it was glorious. I thought it was brilliant. You know, and the cyborg thing was great. That opens a lot of interesting doors that I, obviously they're gonna walk through in the future. Another macro plot that we're gonna get into later. So she is confirmed for season two then? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's official. I, I I'll say I've heard that she's coming back and that, um, we're going to get some Cybok next year. We'll have Kirk next year. Um, we're going to have someone else, someone major next year, uh, original series person next year. And I've also heard, uh, from somebody who has seen the show that Star Trek Picard season three is outstanding and that, um, folks who did not like the first two seasons will be very, very happy with season three and they've seen the entire show. Uh, All all 10 episodes. I mean, uh, I guess real quickly before we kind of get out of here, it's a bit early, but maybe we should go back to the YouTube video that we're talking about or reacting to. And his yeah. his idea, he calls it the album structure. Yeah, yeah. Which is to 
plot out your your television series not like a play act a three act play but like a music album mm-hmm. so within that i thought i mean because this this goes into the whole episodic thing in an album each song stands on its own uh but there is an overall kind of thread to them which is why i was a bit confused why it's um it's this special new thing, the album style. Because that's, I thought, isn't that... Like, you remember the days of yore when a season was 24 episodes long? Uh-huh. Like, now seasons are 13. So what happened? But 24 episodes, all of them were self-contained. Some of them might carry on a, a bigger theme, but they were self-contained. Yeah. Well, the the distribution model changed, so network TV needed to fill, uh, needed to wallpaper a big chunk of the calendar year, um, and that led to the twenty four and really the twenty six episode season. So 26. that last, yeah. So like Star those ninety Star Trek series were all twenty six episodes long. Most network TV in the 1980s and 90s were 26 episodes long. This varied. Um, you had, you know, 24, 22, things like that. It varied depending on the circumstances. But for I was hour long drama show. Um, well, that was a particular one where it was that so was because of the format. Um, but 26 um, was the general sort of baseline. But then you got in, you got into cable, and then when cable came along, th- that the need to fill up fifty-two weeks in the year went away, and so they wanted to focus. And then also, what they wanted, and really HBO drove this. What they really wanted to do was give creators the opportunity to tell the stories they wanted to tell in the formats they wanted to tell. That led to a lot of interesting early experimentation in the late 80s, early 90s. Ultimately led to things like The Sopranos. So they settled by accident on sort of the 10 episode, sometimes 12, and then varyingly you had the six or the eight, right? The six comes into it because what happened sort of the aughts was the sort of the BBC model, which is six episodes always, <laughs> sort of infected the the cable model uh, because of costs, because of distribution, things like that. The BBC limited uh, everything to six episodes essentially because of the cost. And this varied again because you had Doctor Who and things like that that ran longer. But... Um, I thought this was all influenced because of the show Lost. No. No, Lost I, is... Wasn't um, it Lost did uh, season five with six episodes and season six with six episodes? Like, they had they had just enough episodes, like 13 seasons, but they just spread it out over two seasons. Mo, I'm not an expert on Lost. Most of Lost is traditional uh, network episode length, so uh, you know, eighteen, twenty, somewhere around there. I couldn't tell you an exact number, and I couldn't tell you the later seasons because I ducked out of that show. 
but yeah, um, I, I was done at season three, I think it was. But it had um, show Lost is a good example of a show, though, to a point where they maintain that sort of episodic thing with the overlay of the macro um, to great success in the early seasons. And then because they didn't know what the macro story was. <laughs> right. It's she, all completely she, dropped. She broke up in mid-flight, unfortunately. So, um, but yeah, so you had this sort of through the cable early 2000s, 2010s, you have this evolution of the format. And then as you get this huge success, critically, commercially with Sopranos, The Wire, Sex in the City, et cetera, et cetera, um, that sort of solidifies the idea of what we're dealing with today. And now streaming, no rules. There's no hour constraint. There's no limits. There's no commercials, mostly. Um, there's no, wall. you know, there, there, you don't have to worry about filling a slot or a calendar or a date. It's just you need to wallpaper this infinite virtual space you have. So they can play around, and you've seen that with the different shows. They typically, Marvel, Star Wars, those types of shows in the Disney Plus arena, typically six episodes, but they vary. Eight, nine, ten we're going to get 18 episodes of daredevil oh really um yeah <laughs> like on one hand i'm like yeah and on the other hand i'm like whoa like okay so i'm curious about that um and you get them playing around with like different things and you know it's a half the episode links themselves very dramatically we've had episode hour long ep hour long episodes that are 32 minutes or an hour and a half it's that another thing is with the pacing actually that bothers the hell out of me i'm like pick a lane like you know can we just agree 45 minutes 50 minutes an hour can we do that instead of this sort of yo-yoing all over the place i, I it, especially in the mandalorian and book of boba fett where the those extremes are there are mandalorian episodes which i think are 29 minutes long which is i'll just say use your format leverage the space and the time you have with the talent you have you have the these actors and artisans and craftsmen for god's sake if you have an hour use the hour i don't believe in padding i don't believe in doing it just to do it but if you have it why not use it like andor indulge in your character indulge in your theme craft 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 andor is shining a very unflattering light on other star wars right now wait um, a minute remind remind me because i forgot mandalorian each episode of mandalorian is supposed to be an hour but they have one episode that's, that's 29 minutes there's a season one episode which is about 29 minutes long and i i I, I have problems with it. I, I you know, I, I said at the time when this stuff was going on, it's you've gotta you've gotta leverage your format. It's like there's no and to be fair, as I said a moment ago, there's no rules, so there's no rules. So you know, you have those flexibilities and, and they are learning. Mandalorian was the first Star Wars series in this format, first live action Star Wars series. So they're learning and they're figuring things out. I'm I'm okay with that, but like you know, um, so I, I think 
a, a lot of you know the 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 pacing issue uh the structural issue a lot of it comes into i, I think as we're evolving through these formats and these distribution models and the way that we consume these things that ha- that impacts all of that the novel you know real quick has been the novel for a long time but i think it's evolving too because I, one thing with in the digital space now because of the ebook the concept of the novel has become less rigid um for the longest time because of print and paper considerations and sort of esoteric considerations by the houses um certain genres or certain word limits so like science fiction and sort of the top end is over a hundred thousand words so one reason the eververse books are all a hundred thousand words is because they were i started out writing them trying to sell them to a traditional publisher um if you've been reading along, hopefully you have. I appreciate it. You've noticed they've started to creep up and they started to get longer and longer. And I feel <laughs> by the end of this, they're going to be very long. Um, but they can be long now or they can be short. Um, they can kind of be all over the place because that ebook allows you, doesn't have that. It's just like the streaming show, it's just a, it's virtual. So the experience is really the experience. And so to that point with Mandalorian, 29 minutes, if they thought the 29 minutes was the 29 minutes, okay. I think mostly, I think general consensus is, is we need to kind of maybe do more with, you know, our format. But um, but I, it, but it, it allows you to do different things. And I think that's interesting. And that leads into pacing and structure. The shorter your novel is, the more compressed it is mm-hmm. sometimes. The longer it is, the more stretched out it is. Sometimes, um, you know, it at just the same depends. time, you can have like a long book or a long novel with a very short chapter inside it, just to kind of like highlight the brevity, right? I'll tell you, like one one thing I've learned in the last few years is like I had a very rigid idea of like I I remember when I started writing these, like all the chapters have to be the same length, like. 2,500, 3,000 words. And so whenever the hero in particular, you have a very rigid thing. And then it was only as I started, you know, and I started embracing the format and the opportunities that I had that I sort of relaxed on that. So now you have in book three in particular with Abby, the chapters vary a little bit. And then, you know, as you go forward, this starts to get a little bit more flexible too. But it takes a lot to sort of get out of that, um, you know, because you're sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit older, and so I, I come from a different sort of perspective. Like I said, I, I came out of a, I came out of trying to get these books into those formats that the houses that the publishers have been looking for, and so I have friends who are traditionally published, and I know very well the strictures strictures that are in place on you when you try to, you have to meet this very specific thing down to the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get all that and, and that that creates its own sort of challenge, right? You know, to try to create this, this sort of right pace and tone and structure um, within that. And so and that's exciting. It's a challenge. It's also very frustrating. Um, but when it when you read it and, and it's successful, it's 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 fantastic. Um, but it's. 
I just starting to feel like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth with the pacing because I've sort of been like, you know, pacing, and then now I'm like, well, whatever, it's the format. So I guess I suppose I suppose it just depends, right? At the end of the day, like you know what your object is. Well, it reminds me of like, uh, say for example, our writers workshop program. I remember a couple of professors telling me that like the rule is there, but professionals know when and how to break the rules. So when we're talking about pacing, sure. The rule is there about pacing and structure and how to kind of organize your TV show. And if it doesn't work, that's when people notice it because you know, it's fine that they're breaking the rule, but sometimes you don't successfully break the rule and then people notice that yeah, you didn't do a good job. A, so That's a great point. I think there's uh, a lot of these shows are running before they can walk and um, this happens in every medium, but, and that's very true of me. Like, you know, I, I'm starting to feel like I can free up and I can do be a little bit more flexible in, as a writer, but I had to learn I had to learn how to write one of these books and Mm -hmm. I didn't, I I had a, I didn't have an exact template for the kind of speaking specifically for Eververse. I didn't have a good template other than it had, it has a very sort of, has an engine underneath the hood, which is, has that three act structure, you know, uh, beginning, middle, end, inciting incident, et cetera. So I knew that, but it, it took, I had to learn how to do that. And then I feel like in the second book I did, I've learned, I learned how to do that successfully, how to tell that kind of story. And then it was only after that, that I was like, you know, I can start to be more liberal with myself. Yeah. A bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to really famous Dalai Lama quote too. Yeah. And I think we're all, you know, we're all new to it. I, I, I will say these folks who are writing these shows and who are working so hard and they've got this, I, I think it, I mentioned Jessica Gao with She-Hulk. They're doing fantastic work. I, I love She-Hulk. I adore She-Hulk. It's just, I, I, I love that show and I don't typically watch the documentaries anymore or the behind the scenes stuff. Um, I just, I don't enjoy them anymore. But I watched the She-Hulk one because I love that show, and, and that documentary was a good reminder why. Um, it's a great crew from top to bottom and who had a lot of fun. And if the show, you know, had problems here and there, you know, whatever. It's it's something to complain about. It's, it doesn't make a material difference in my enjoyment of the show. But um, whereas again in the star wars crew just enormous talent across the board and book of boba fett left me cold but those people that are working on that show are a lot of talent a lot of extraordinary talent in front of and behind the camera and so i appreciate the challenges in doing everything because i know how hard it is to make these shows and to make these movies especially during COVID, which all of these shows we're talking about have been made in the most difficult of circumstances. And I know from a writing point of view, how hard it is to get something that people enjoy. 
Yes. So it's very difficult and you have their things that are out of their control. So I, I, you know, I'm sort of not as, not as uh, harsh, you know, anymore. And, and I do not really, to be completely honest, I, I'm not interested in being sort of hypercritical if I ever was, but uh, the, the stuff anymore, just as a writer, because one thing I've learned as a writer, just a books, of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing TV shows, but um, it, it's, it's just so hard. This is so hard and everybody's going to react to it differently. And, you know, I, I got uh, someone left a review on one of my books the other day where they described my writing as incoherent. Okay. Um, that's cool. Um, so everybody has different responses to it, you know. Um, <laughs> so I know it's very hard and I know it's how difficult it is to please everybody. And also understanding that your object very often is not to please everybody. Um, your object is to tell your story. And I, I, when I write these books from myself, I'm writing them for myself. Um, right. I'm writing the book I want to read and that's not necessarily the book other people want to read. So, um, you know, some people might quibble with this, that, or they just might find the whole thing incoherent. So, you know, that's... Yeah, I mean, my you, take on it is, um, well, it's it's what we were talking about. It's not, it's not about whether something is good or bad, like, or as Lindsay Ellis says, thing bad. It's not about that. It's about how effective the, how effective their method is at what they want to accomplish. Right? So yep. in that regard, it's not about whether Mandalorian, for example, is good or bad. The choices that they made, were they effective in what they wanted in the story that they wanted to tell? That's a discussion to be had. doesn't make the show bad or good. Same thing with She-Hulk. We've talked about She-Hulk. I liked the show. I liked what it wanted to do. My criticisms are about it is that it didn't go far enough. Um, same thing with my mm-hmm. uh, my thoughts on um, the middle Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. No, yeah. is that that's the middle one, right? Episode eight. Yep. Yep. I wanted to like it. I really did. I I thought everything that they were saying was really interesting in terms of like another side of the Star Wars universe, especially war profiteering in star wars but i don't think that the choices they made were effective in telling that story because they didn't go far enough Mm -hmm. right so same thing with pacing and structure it's great that andor was effective in how they're they're pacing i have not seen it so i can't speak on that um strange new worlds i think was effective uh a couple quibbles here and there but overall it was effective in what it was doing i don't think these are criticisms on the art itself or on the media itself it's more of a the question is different we're just the audience and so we're reacting to it honestly and I, i think what i'm interested in as a writer and a reader and a viewer is why am i reacting this way and so i try to I'm no longer, I'm not as, as interested, I should say, in, in being a sort of critical of sort of analyze. One thing I've, I've 
the past couple of years of the pandemic, I've been doing the podcast, I've been writing reviews, I've been sort of engaged with this stuff in a stronger way than I had been before, where I just in the, you know, most of my life, with exception, I've been a passive uh, consumer. And what I found is, is that I enjoy this. I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy analyzing it. I enjoy responding to it and reacting to it. I don't have the ambition anymore to be as critical and um, analytical as other people uh, are. And, you know, and sort of get into the, you know, sort of the I read a lot of different, one thing I typically do is with these shows is I watch the show and then I'll read four or five reviews from different places about that particular episode and I I get an idea of what people think and that's sort of a 360 kind of a thing and and I often disagree with the reviews or sometimes I agree, it just depends, but I like to know what other people think. I also know that like just because like... (laughs) Some things I just want to react to. I don't want to know too much about my, you know, I want to know some stuff. I don't want to know too much about my own reactions, you know, to certain things. It's like, I'm not super interested in, you know, like, why did I bounce off Book of Boba Fett? It just wasn't good. It just wasn't good. Do I love all the people in it? You bet. You bet. Um, You know, do I love seeing those folks? I love being in Star Wars. You never, I'm never going to turn down Star Wars. So that's not the issue. It's just, it just wasn't good. Absolutely adore Andor. Absolutely love it. Um, why do I love it? It's because it's in my wheelhouse. It's the kind of show I would make if I was making a Star Wars show, except Tony Gilroy is much more talented than I am. But do I love other Star Wars, different Star Wars that does different things? Yep. So why is that? doesn't really matter. But I, I love just reacting to them, you know. See, I guess for me, that's uh, that's the thing. Like, I I love the the analyzing. I love the the deep critical thought to it because it makes me better. It makes me better in both um, my own writing. It makes me better in my own critical analysis, and it makes me better in my own uh, decision making. Like. You know, every day, all of the decisions I make in my normal everyday world, in my work world, being able to analyze the decisions and choices that other people make allow me to reflect on my own decisions, maybe not even in writing, but in completely separate ways. And I I just, I get to a better understanding and I feel I get better. I think where I'm bouncing off of some of this stuff is the reactions I've become um, everything in sort of modern uh, media is all about the reaction and I find a lot of it performative I find a lot of um, a lot of it insincere and so what I've found is when I've, I, I, you know, I think what I'm speaking to is sort of some scar tissue. What I've found when I've tried to engage on that level and to, you know, to do what you're saying and to be analytical, put yourself out there a little bit and take those things that those things are generally beat up with baseball bats. Um, 
by the oh, see, that's the difference. That I'm not out there expounding my views only here. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a, I had a real, I've had really negative experiences on that front. And I think that's left me a little bit reticent to sort of engage in that too. And it's also, I, I have genuinely um, sort of bounced off a little bit the need to sort of um, um, get a complete profound understanding of why I engage in some things that you, some things are just cool. And so I don't really want to understand it too much. It's like, I think I mentioned this, we were talking about Harley one time. I'm not super interested in why I'm so interested in Harley. I just love her. I don't really need, you know, like the people who are doing the Harley podcasts and the, and the essays and the books and trying to understand Harley. I, that's cool. That's fantastic. I don't really need to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love her. And so she means a lot to me personally, um, for reasons that are, you know, I, I am aware of, but as to the alchemy that's involved there, I don't really need to know it. Um, you know, and that, and cause I don't really want to peel too hard at layers, which are informing my creativity for mm -hmm. fear that I expose them and then therefore depower them. So, um, whatever, if that makes sense, what, you know, so some of the things that are active in my writing, uh, especially relative to the superhero space in which I'm dealing with in the Eververse series, I have a, I feel like right now I have a strong enough awareness of them that is, that is comfortable for me and what I'm doing. And I don't want to dig too much deeper on it because I, I'm, I, you know, for fear of just peeling that back to the bone. And I just, I want those things to play out in the writing I want to come from an honest, reactive place. Um, and if people want to pick it apart after they read it, then, you know, they're welcome to do so. I, I don't want to do that in the writing. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. There's a there's an old quote I'm going to totally mangle, but it's something about, like, if you pick at the mystery enough, or if you pick at like the magic enough, it's just cold science or something like that. Where like you kind of the demystification of the magical. Yeah. And yeah, I've had this conversation before. It's one of those things where I kind of actually, I, I definitely see the validity in it. Um, yeah, I definitely see that. In some cases, though, it allow it for me. It allows me to to experience the magic on a completely different level that I never thought about before, and uh, that oh that sure feels really power empowering and powerful too. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I I will say you know like for on the comic book front, on the analytical front, um, I've talked before about um, the Oh Gosh Oh Golly Oh Well podcast on Excalibur. I, I was privileged to be a guest on it last year. Was it last year? Um, and um, so they're still going strong. They're going through the whole run on Excalibur. I don't feel like I ever understood Excalibur until I started re uh, listening to the podcast. And every week they have someone, I get, you know, the three of them, Anna and Mav and uh, uh, Andrew, are so insightful, so thoughtful just bring up shit never occurred to me because I'm not an academic. They're all doctors. They're all PhDs. 
that I would never think of. And they have guests on who have these incredible perspectives and insights into this thing, which is so profound. And then they start talking, you know, so like Nola starts talking or Stephanie Burt starts talking. And I'm like, they start talking about Rachel and you're like, oh my God, like, yes. But I never thought about that. And so I love having that awareness and understanding. I love having that acknowledgement and now relationship with that. Um, that's that's great. I love that. But that's I want to be receptive to that, mm-hmm. right? I don't I don't you know I I want to be open to that, and, and maybe that's different from what I'm talking about with the other stuff. But um, you know, like I said, I don't really want to know about Harley or some things. It's 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 I want to I want I I want to be open, and I I love learning more about why you know these characters and other people's experiences with them and that helps me and sort of have a better understanding of some of it but it's like i don't want to get too critical myself i don't want to get too analytical myself for fear of like i said i don't want to peel too hard at it you Mm know um i want to create i want to i want to give i want to you know i shared with you someone left a review not the review i was talking about um i left a review of kit and like their headline on their view is like the first appearance of kit and it's like we talk about first appearances Mm -hmm. all the time on the pod and it's like you know that's someone's that's someone's experience and that's someone's engagement with kit and i've had i've very like i i've had a few over the years really positive emails and sort of messages from readers and and about kit and what she means to them and that I adore that and I also know that that I don't want to ever touch that. I don't want to ever break that seal. So, you know, I know what Kit means to me, but she means something to them. So, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But anyway, right. yeah, just to in, uh, just to wrap, uh, this is Steve Shives. Uh, why streaming series are so poorly paced and how to fix it is the title of the video. Uh, Steve Shives <laughs> that we've only uh, kind of tangentially talked about really yeah Steve Shives uh, uh, don't know I haven't watched any of his other videos but it seems like he's got uh, a nice little channel going on yeah congratulations to him that'll do it for today folks thanks again for joining us once again I'm Darby Harn and you can find more information about me and my books at my website darbyharn.com I'm also on Twitter at Darby Harn Sugu, how can they find out more about us in the podcast? You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach us at our email address, shelfwarmers at gmail.com. Send us feedback about the show, your thoughts, opinions, recommendations, and insights on our perspectives. We're always happy to hear from you, our audience, and we'd love to share your opinions on our next show. Again, that's shelfwarmers at gmail.com. And if email isn't your thing, we're also on Twitter. You can reach us at Shelf Warmers. Give us a holler. We have new episodes every Friday. As always, remember to stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and get vaccinated when you can. Stick around to listen to a free clip of more content from us. Subscribe today and you can hear the rest of the following and more. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.